Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Welcome back, everyone, to the third episode of Urine Drug Screening. And this week, we're going to talk about benzodiazepine, and we're also going to get into chromatography. Really important. So just to refresh, immunoassay is the screening, and that can be done in your office. It can also be done in the lab. So that is a screening test, immunoassay. Problem with immunoassays, it has a very high sensitivity but low specificity. So you can see a lot of false positives and false negatives. So if you have a high-risk patient or you're concerned about the patient, you need to confirm that what you're seeing is what you're seeing. So this is a confirmatory testing, which is the mass spectrometry, the gas chromatography. And we're going to hopefully finish off things. But today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about benzodiazepine. So benzodiazepine testing... And I'm talking about immunoassays still. So the point-of-care testing or the lab testing you do with immunoassays, either in your office or in your lab at your institution, the thresholds and the cross-reactivity can vary significantly between labs. So it's important to know what your lab is doing. So most immunoassays are designed to detect diazepam or Valium and its metabolites. So the metabolites can be problematic because sometimes when they come back positive, often healthcare providers assume that the patient is also taking these other benzodiazepines when in fact they are metabolites of the diazepam or the Valium. So the immunoassays for diazepam could be positive for temazepam and oxazepam. So it's also, so diazepam is metabolized to temazepam and it is also di- uh, uh, metabolized to noradiazepam, which can also uh, give you a positive oxazepam. Lots of PAMs there. Anyway, the important thing to know is that your Valium testing um, is, is really can be positive as well for other types of metabolites or other types of benzodiazepines. So you have to be very careful when you're interpreting the immunoassay. So there are many, many types of benzodiazepines that exist. Um, most that you see that are misused or abused in the clinical setting tend to be very short-acting. And one of the crises that we're having in Nova Scotia is the misuse or abuse of alprazolam, which is a short-acting benzodiazepine. Um, There are also those that are very lipophilic, uh, like diazepam, that are also abused. So we do see a lot of abuse and misuse around diazepam. So they often have a high utility within our community. So it's important when you're testing what you're actually testing for. Now, the important thing about alprazolam, your benzodiazepine uh, screening could be positive, but it doesn't mean that it's positive for alprazolam. So alprazolam is actually metabolized through a different pathway. So if your patient is being prescribed or dispensed alprazolam, you need to be doing confirmatory testing or your immunoassay must be able to detect alprazolam. So most are not designed to detect that. So that's important around the um, benzodiazepine. The same thing with clonazepam. So lorazepam, clonazepam, alprazolam have very low cross-reactivity and are generally not detected in urine drug testing that we do for benzodiazepine, so the immunoassays. So um, it is not uncommon. So if you're prescribing the patient clonazepam or lorazepam for their immunoassay to come back negative, you need that confirmatory testing. If they do test positive, however, for benzos, 
they that can be concerning because it shouldn't be showing up in their urine drug screening. And it could suggest that they're maybe using something like diazepam or oxazepam or temazepam. So it's important to do that confirmatory testing. So just to refresh that, so your benzodiazepine, the immunoassay in your benzodiazepine is designed to pick up uh, value or diazepam. And it will also pick up the metabolites of diazepam. It is not designed to pick up clonazepam, alprazolam, or lorazepam. So often you need confirmatory testing in those populations. So let's move on to amphetamines and metamphetamines. So these are really challenging because they're very, very simple molecules. They're often treated, uh, often used to treat uh, ADHD. So ADHD um, hyperactivity with or without hyperactivity. So usually the pharmacology that we're using is either stimulant-based or non-stimulant-based. So amphetamine is a stimulant. The important thing is that amphetamines and methylphenidate, which is Ritalin, are not the same. So methylphenidate will not show up in a um, urine drug screen. So it's often difficult to detect amphetamines because it's very difficult to develop antibodies for testing. It carries a very, very high false positive with immunoassay testing. So Ritalin, as we mentioned, is not an amphetamine, therefore will not test positive. So you will need an immunoassay that's specific to Ritalin, or you do confirmatory testing through um, your, immune, your um, mass spectrometry or your gas chromatography. Amphetamines do have a very high false positive rate because there are many, many different uh, drugs that will interact uh, with that key lock mechanism that we talked about. And we did talk about some of the different testing that will test positive, including Vicks Vapor Rub, which is kind of mind-boggling. So it's important to know if the patient is using that. So, um, so yeah, there is a lot of false negatives uh, and false positives, I'm uh, sorry, false positives with amphetamine testing. And always remember that your Ritalin, your Bifentin, your Concerta will not test for amphetamine in your urine drug testing. You will need confirmatory testing or you'll need an immunoassay that's very specific to methylphenidate. So the stimulants that are common out there, so we did talk about methylphenidate, so Ritalin is short-acting, long-acting is Concerta or Bifentin. Your amphetamines are Dexedrine or Adderall, XR, or Vyvanse. So the Vyvanse and Adderall are the long-acting form. Non-stimulant treatment, there are SNRIs and there are alpha-2A agonists, but I'm not going to talk about those right now. There's some great... Uh, different guides that you can use around the prescribing of the, uh, the, the ADHD treatment, both stimulant and non-stimulant. But the important thing for this podcast is to know that your Ritalin and your Bifentin and your Concerta will not sh should not show up in your amphetamine testing. You'll need confirmatory testing or an immunoassay that's specific to Ritalin. So metamphetamine is a powerful, very highly addictive stimulant that affects the central nervous system. So the most common one out there would be called crystal meth. And they are having an incredible challenge in Western Canada right now around crystal meth abuse through the emergency departments. And we've seen some terrifying uh, videos uh, around some of the interactions of patients uh, who are altered by these medications. And they tend to become very, very violent very, very aggressive uh, and very difficult to manage, uh, especially in a setting that is uh, not all that safe. Emergency departments tend to have a lot of flow in and out 
Uh, there's a lot of vulnerable individuals in those spaces, people coming in with all kinds of different conditions. And when someone is being is is altered and is very aggressive, uh, it becomes very challenging to manage that person. So they're having huge challenges in Western Canada. Crystal meth is often called crystal meth because it looks like glass fragments or like a shiny bluish white rock. It's very it's chemically very similar to amphetamines and it will test positive for amphetamine. Um, and uh, other kinds of names for methamphetamine include blue, crystal, ice, meth, or speed. So just to refresh on that is that your uh, immunoassay will not uh, be positive for your methylphenidate. It will be positive for amphetamines as well as methamphetamines. Um, so in your patients on Ritalin, Concerta, Bifentin, you need confirmatory testing or you need uh, an immunoassay that can detect uh, the methylphenidate-based uh, stimulants. So cocaine we talked about briefly in the last podcast, and it is a really, uh, it's an interesting substance, and it is fairly misused and abused, especially in university scenes. We're seeing this surge, up, upsurge of its use in our, in our community as well. And when you're talking to some of the kids that are using this, it's just, it's no different from their mindset, you know, using occasionally cocaine as you would go out to have an occasional drink of alcohol. But obviously there are some concerns, especially for those individuals that repeat the use of that substance who later on go and develop a substance use disorder. So you're just trying to manage risk with patients. They are going to experiment. Um, somebody that tests positive for cocaine doesn't mean that they have a substance use disorder to cocaine. They may actually just be an occasional user. So cocaine is extracted from the coca leaf. Uh, most of the cocaine that's out there is not pure cocaine. It's often mixed with other substances. So you may start to see some cross-reactivity within uh, your, your immunoassays, so what you're, what you're testing for. The immunoassay itself tests for benzoyaconine. I can't even say that very well. I'm not good at pronouncing some of these words. But um, yes, yeah, so it, it, it's very specific to this metabolite. Uh, and so there's no other cross-reactivity to any other metabolite uh, so it's very rare to see um, a cocaine urine screen be, be caused by something else. So a urine drug screen that's positive for co cocaine is almost never a po false positive because it's specific test for this metabolite that is unique to cocaine. So when I do see cocaine, I am assuming that the patient is using cocaine. It doesn't mean that they have a substance use, but if I'm managing that patient who has a substance use disorder for an opiate use and I see cocaine, then that is a predictor of risk. So you wanna keep that patient very safe. So it means I limit the dispensing of that patient, uh, may do some more oversight and that patient needs witness dispensing of their opioid. PCP is something that you're gonna see in that federal five. So it's starting to make another upsurge as well. So often the other names that we use for this are white powder or angel dust and typically it is snorted. It's often combined with other illicit substances, so it's often sprayed on marijuana joints, uh, and they often refer to this as rocket fuel. Patients who use this often are very, very agitated, and they can also be completely psychotic and aggressive. This is a drug that makes really good people do dumb things. The other drug that we often see around the designer drug around the bath salts. So this is the synthetic cathones, and... Um, what bath salts do, which is insane, besides the fact that patients are completely, you know, uh, psychotic, is it makes them want to jump off things. So they're jumping off, you know, lampposts or jumping off very high heights. And I don't know if that's specific to that drug, but we'll also see a lot of uh, bricksmiths where they're, they're grinding their teeth and clenching. And so their teeth will be in terrible shape. 
So these are other things that you might start to see in their urine, although there is no urine drug test that we can use to detect bath salts. But it is something to think about uh, in a patient that you're seeing a change in behavior. Urine drug screening is not showing anything. It's possible that these individuals are using bath salts. So this is where you need to talk to your lab, maybe get some confirmatory testing. Other things that uh, you might see are synthetic cannabinoids or spice, K2. They're not going to show up in your immunoassay. So this is where you want to talk to the lab as well. So now we're going to get into chromatography. And chromatography is really important. So all of what we've been talking about the last few podcasts is really about immunoassays. So chromatography is the confirmatory or the definitive testing. It usually has very high sensitivity and high specificity. It's either usually performed with either gas or liquid chromatography and then goes through uh, mass spectrometry. So it can detect very small quantities of a specific drug and or the metabolites of that drug. So this is where you need to know the metabolites of a particular drug. What's beautiful about chromatography is when you get that report from the lab, it will give you the drug and the metabolite by name not just a positive or negative. It will actually give you the name of the substance. Now, the lab sometimes is only testing for specific types of substances, but more and more they're reevaluating, especially as trends change in the community. So it will also give you a quantitative concentration of that drug in the sample that they've tested. So it can be very, very helpful. What chromatography is, is a separation of a mixture So you're taking this mixture from the urine, so you've got your urine sample, and you're passing it in a solution or a suspension. So there's a carrier medium, whether it's gas or liquid, and what happens is that it separates out the compounds by different polarities. I'm not a biochemist, but this is my understanding. Uh, So you're separating out these compounds uh, by their molecular interactions with the carrier medium. And then what happens is it goes through a mass spectrometer. And that mass spectrometer ionizes the compounds and detects fragments by using their mass-to-charge ratios. That sounds really complicated. This allows for the identification of these distinct compounds based on their molecular fingerprint. So it is a very, very specific process. Now, there are different types of chromatography and also uh, carrier mediums. But you need to know what is being happening. So in Halifax, they're using the uh, gas chromatography, mass spectrometry. Um, But if you have any questions about the results that you're seeing, this is when you want to reach out to the lab. They're usually very, very helpful, uh, especially when you have a specific substance that the patient is using and you're wondering how it's showing up in that chromatography. Because there is no way that we're going to know all of this information. But this is how we can learn and how we can remember as well. And typically, especially in rural communities, is that we'll start to see trends in community around certain substances. So it might be very information in terms of looking at trends within the province um, and how communities can react to those trends. So chromatography can sometimes pick up these trends that we're starting to see. Um, So don't be afraid to reach out to your toxicologist or your clinical pharmacist or your lab uh, biochemist because they can be very, very helpful. So what kinds of chromatography are out there? There's gas chromatography, there's mass spectrometry, there's liquid chromatography. So there's different combinations. Now, what we're starting to see is that liquid chromatography is actually becoming uh, more of an important focus. And there's a couple of reasons why. So you'll often see this, um, you know, liquid chromatography, mass spec, mass spec. 
And what's happening there is that the analysis has a second analytical urine separation step. So it has a very low susceptibility to false positive and false negative results. So it's a more accurate um, specimen. It requires less urine volume. So it seems that these labs are moving more and more to that liquid chromatography and this two-step analytical process that is out there. So I haven't had a chance to actually talk to the uh, the lab uh, chemists in Halifax, but it would be really interesting to see if we're moving to that or if they're already doing that kind of testing. So what are the challenges with the gas chromatography or the confirmatory testing is that the cutoff limits can be a problem, even though they're at a lower threshold. So it's really um, unusual for them not to be able to pick up some substances. It's also very expensive, and it does take time. You don't get the results of those tests right at the bedside. It takes probably a good week to get the final results. And it really should be reserved for patients when immunoassays uh, give you an unexpected result. I do feel, though, that gas chromatography, especially um, if we're doing it once a year, may be helpful in a patient that they're on synthetic opioids because we know we're going to have to do that next step because it may not show up in their urine. Whether or not we should be moving to that, I don't know. And this is where we need to sit down and have a discussion with all the experts that sit around and make this make these kinds of uh, decisions. Um, but it's also, I feel, can make it a little bit easier for clinicians that are trying to make these decisions at the bedside. So these are the conversations that we need to have around this kind of testing. Confirmatory testing, as a rule, happens after that preliminary or the, uh, the immunoassay um, that we want to confirm what the patient is taking. So I'm just going to try and clue up here and to summarize some of the points that we've made through these three podcasts. Uh, if there's any questions that come up, please send them to paintalk.ca. We also are on Twitter now. Uh, I'll post all those links, actually, if anybody is interested in, in uh, reaching us in that medium as well. Um, so this is all uh, new for me. So uh, there are some challenges. There's no question. But here are some of the important points that I want to leave you with about urine drug testing. It's a huge topic. It's going to be wonderful to get other people that are experts in this field that can help us understand it even a little bit better. But we need to see urine drug monitoring and screening as an important tool to keep our patients safe. We always do urine drug screening and monitoring for patients, never to patients. And it's also about always about safety for the patient as well as the community. Assume that your uh, screening test or immunoassay is presumptive positive, it's not an accurate positive, and do the next step, which is the confirmatory testing. If you have concerns about what you're seeing in that initial immunoassay, don't cut the patient off whatever you do. Have a conversation, maybe limit the amount of quantity of substances that they have, uh, and, and involve your pharmacist to do your pill counts, things that you can do to help keep that patient safe until you get your confirmatory testing done. So have a plan of action, and hopefully you've discussed that with the patient before you even uh, prescribe high-risk pharmacology to the patient, just like you would with Coumadin or you know any other high-risk medication where you need to be able to monitor levels uh, that the patient is taking the medication in the way that they should, all kinds of different types of medications. The other thing is that you want to have that plan of action that we talked about, and if you do see aberrancy, don't ignore it respond to it. So respond to it in a compassionate way, non-judgmental, motivated by safety. So safety, not moral or ethical reasoning, it's really about safety. And for me, it's non-negotiable generally. If I'm concerned about the safety of that patient or I'm concerned about the safety of the community. Unexpected results should be discussed with the patient to identify the underlying reasons why it may be not what you would expect and, and whether or not you need to take the next steps. 
to definitive testing. And if that patient is open to the conversation, which is an amazing thing, people patients are grateful when we have these discussions and they're so desperate for help because they don't know how to get out of these traps. And I can't tell you how many times when I've sat down beside the bedside with that patient to discuss these test results that we've been able to get them over to help uh, get them into treatment, and hopefully save their lives. So it can be just life-changing when you do in a non-judgmental way about offering patient the help to get on the right track so they can get their life back. Most, most of our patients who are struggling with substance use really did not plan to go down that track. Um, it's no different than if somebody was smoking and they did not feel that they would develop a nicotine addiction before they know they can't. So the more you, they can't stop. So the more you repeat the activity of that substance, the more you use it in a vulnerable brain, the more likely it is to change that brain, resulting in a life-threatening complication, which is addiction. And people who develop addiction are at risk of dying. To me, addiction is a life-threatening complication of a substance that's being used over and over again. It's no different if they're coming in with a heart attack if they're coming in with a major complication of their illnesses, previous illnesses, I need to respond as I would for any other patient whose life is in danger. So I just need to come at it with compassion in a non-judgmental way. And uh, just to reinforce that last part is that uh, urine drug screening is done for patients, not to patients, with the ultimate goal of improving the safety of the patient and the public. So we're going to end there. Looking forward to another podcast that's coming up, and that's with the Chronic Pain Task Force, uh, which looking at a national program for addressing pain nationally. So we're seeing this all over the world. So I'm really looking forward to discussing with the chairs of that committee in our next podcast. So stay safe. Hope to see you in the new year and uh, hope we can uh, do some more pain talk. We'll end it there. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.